I am so happy to welcome Anna Kent to How to Build a Village. Anna Kent has delivered babies in war zones, caring for the most vulnerable women in the most vulnerable places in the world. In her new book, Frontline Midwife, she shares the challenges she faced as a nurse midwife in South Sudan, Haiti, Bangladesh, and home in the UK. The book is deeply moving and personal. I recommend everyone go out and read it. And I am so pleased to welcome Anna to the podcast to talk more. So welcome, Anna. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I was saying this book is is so personal and you include so many taboo topics um, that you're talking about your own mental health, you're talking about sexual experiences, you're talking about babies you delivered, graphic detail, um, you weave together. And I love how you do this. You weave together your experience with the experiences of the mothers you cared for. So what, what was it like writing this book and revisiting these extreme challenges you faced in the field? Mm, well, writing for me started, I've, I, as far as I can remember, I've always written. I think if I can put things down on paper, to me, they've then made some form of sense. Um, so it's it, for me, I still use it definitely as a processing and it, and it came to diary writing. Um, I can remember when it was um, the Rwandan genocide, I kept a diary and it was very, you know, teenage scribblings and not really understanding the, not really understanding the deep political um, complexities but my diary would swing between the Rwandan genocide and then maybe what boy I was going to go to the school disco with. <laughs> so even at, at, you know, as a, as an early teen, I used my diary as an outlet. And then, yeah, so my first, um, my first work overseas, I was a year in South Sudan, which was post-conflict. It had been 50 years of civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, I was staying in a one-man tent in a very isolated area with one other person. And so my diary again, sort of as a 26 year old became an outlet that I could really um, express myself in. And it helped with dealing with sort of the day-to-day atrocities that we witnessed. We also, you know, witnessed so many people that we could help, but also people that we couldn't, which was a huge burden to bear. And over time, I realized that writing not only was helping me, but this diary had become some form of testimonial because a lot of the women that I worked with, at the time it was estimated the worst estimates that one in eight women died in childbirth. And, you know, I was keeping these accounts of women that I'd seen and women that I'd helped, women that I'd spoken to, these lives, their their complex lives that I'd had this glimpse into. And I suddenly realised that this diary, especially if they didn't make it, you know, maybe I was the only person that's recorded anything of their very transient and very vulnerable, fragile lives. So suddenly the the diary writing became sort of this this sense of a vigil with them or a sense of urgency that... um, you know, we should we should know about these important people. They shouldn't just fade into the ether and and never be spoken of again. And then I worked on several different projects over the years, and then um, yeah, it did have a mental health impact on me. And again, writing um, became more and more important until one day I was just really lucky. I crossed paths with a wonderful author, Julia Gregson. And I just I basically bought this, you know, I'd write on napkins, I'd write on um, like scraps of paper. I'd, I had a series of bad dreams and I found that by writing them down, it just disempowered them a little bit. And I had this whole pile of mm. stacks of diaries and papers and, and different um, different things. And I just said to Julia, like, I, d- I don't know what to do with this. This this feels important. This feels, um, I, you know, I can't get rid of it. I can't just keep building these stacks of paper. This is crazy. My house is stacks of paper. And she just said, well, you know, we could write a book with this. And I was like, no. Mm. She was like, you know, why don't we just try? 
Um, and so I started writing sections to Julia and then she'd say, How, you know, tell me a bit more about this or expand on this. Because I, I found it really difficult to actually talk in first person. To me, it was all third person to start with, like somebody else was doing these things. So I never wanted any praise. I didn't want that wasn't the angle. It was it was about telling stories. Um, and then, yeah, it, it just kind of flew with that, which, yeah, it just took its own momentum and, and has and has gained and out of everything, if writing this book can in some way help improve the lives of the women that I've worked with in some of the most wonderful and dreadful and horrific of places, then, then yeah, then my goal has been met. And has it been therapeutic for you? Absolutely. Gosh, I, I, I couldn't, sometimes I have to actually pinch myself to think, yeah, I have to really check into myself. Like, am I telling the truth or am I telling the full truth? Is this, you know, some some chat over, you know, a table at the pub with my friends after a point, or actually, am I am I telling the truth? Because that was one of my sort of self directives that there's no need to embellish any of this because the truth is wild and wacky enough. And one one of the things that helps me, a lot of the women I worked with overseas would tie a belly chain of some description. Um, it helped them focus. Um, they felt it give them some sort of like universal like. Um, like a talisman, some sort of char- lucky charm, essentially, to keep them safe when they had nothing else. Um, but I still wear one myself, so sometimes to help me check in, like, is this true? Is this a real reflection of what's happened, even though it's completely crazy? Um, I do just check in with myself. But yeah, the, the book has been a huge catharsis to understanding why I found it so difficult and why I have struggled and, and why I have had these moments of not recognizing myself or feeling somehow that I've been like like um what's the word like just extracted from myself um so writing has been hugely beneficial it's been a lifesaver and that's not an exaggeration but also practice of mindfulness practice of meditation also just brings me back to reality as well and so how has your experience as a frontline midwife informed your your current role Mm, well, when I first went to South Sudan with Dots Without Borders, MSF, um, Medicines on Frontier, I was an emergency nurse. I was an emergency room nurse for three years, Amy nurse. And I'd seen like stabbings and I'd seen shootings and I'd, I'd held mothers that they cried for their children. I really felt I was, you know, experienced and I was good at my job and I had a lot to offer in, in war zones. But when I landed in South Sudan on the first day, my first patient um, had an obstetric fistula, which to be honest, I hadn't really heard of, but her baby had died very sadly. She'd had no access to a midwife and the baby had been too big for her to deliver. Um, And it had created an abnormal hole through from her vagina, through to her, um, from her uterus vagina into her bladder and bowel. So all that she would normally pass from bladder and bowel would leak um, from her uncontrollably. And she'd been, kicked out from her family she'd been completely isolated but also she was septic and she was dying mm. I just had this huge wake-up call like I am not ready for this I you know I'd never even heard of this let alone mm. knew what to do that was helpful and I mean fortunately I was surrounded by this fantastic MSF team national staff and international staff so you know they they carried me and they taught me and I was there for a year so I did have a chance to sort of put these skills into practice um and I just, it was after one other episode where um, I was with a woman. We knew it was twins, but we had no scan. We had no, we didn't have electricity or running water. 
Um, could definitely feel that it was twins in there. First baby came out, second baby came out, some brief resuscitation, but doing really well. Felt back onto her belly, expecting to feel the uterus con contracted, but actually it was another baby in there. And we were like, ah, oh, there's another one in there, get another birth kit. It was sort of all hands on deck, but this, this third baby was also born alive, which, you know, that's crazy. Triplet vaginal delivery is often unheard of. Um, but they all did survive the, the month they were with us postnatally. I hope they did survive um, long term. But I just, yeah, by the light of my head torch in my little one man tent, I just wrote in my diary, I have to be a midwife because mm. it absolutely hit home that everybody needs a midwife. Um, even for people that haven't had kids or for whatever reason, you know, they still needed a midwife when they were born. Um, you know, it's it sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, midwives save lives. That's the mm. bottom line. So I, Came back to the UK, got my first degree in midwifery, and then went back out to Haiti and Bangladesh um, as a nurse and a midwife. And now I still work um, in the NHS now. So I work part time as a nurse in emergency cardiac catheter lab, where we take people mid heart attack and put in stents and emergency pacemakers and things. And I spend the other half of my week as a specialist midwife for teenagers who are pregnant in my local community. Um, I love both jobs. Having Having a nurse job and a midwife job somehow overall creates a balance. So you've got the acute emergency medical work, but then you've got the more holistic side and the complexities of um, working with younger people who are pregnant. Um, and the two sides together, there's massive pressure points in both. You know, I've worked patient facing through the whole COVID pandemic. Um, but something about having pressure points in different areas means it is sustainable for me. So it it kind of works, you know, I'm a single mum and I've got a very vibrant five-year-old. So <laughs> work has to be something that's also sustaining as well as that I give. It has to, has to give me back as well to be able to continue with it. So how did your work as a min midwife inform your work as a mother? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think sometimes when you're a midwife, you can know a little bit too much maybe going into childbirth. <laughs> um so very sadly, my first pregnancy miscarried um, on my wedding day, which was unfortunate. I think even though I'd worked with pregnancy miscarriage for a number of years, I'd really underestimated the brutality that I felt with, with miscarriage. I had, um, I wish I could go back and give people slightly different care. I've definitely got more informed care since you know, those two lines on a pregnancy test, they'd taken my life in a whole new direction. I was marrying someone I didn't know particularly well um, with this dream that I was going to get my happy ever after. So it, it really did impact me in much deeper than I ever anticipated. Um, and then my second pregnancy, my daughter, my first daughter, Fatima, um, sadly died at birth. Well, we found out at a routine scan that she had a brain tumour and that she could never survive. So she had died at birth. Um, and I think one of the things that working overseas taught me, um, you know, this brain tumour, it was a one in a million chance. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really like I still can't quite get my head around it. I'd worked with like all the crazy things that can happen in pregnancy, like schistosomiasis and malaria and, mm -hmm. um, you know, all cholera and, and things. You know, my, my radar for problems in pregnancy was really quite wide. And then we were affected by something that I'd never even heard of, uh, mm -hmm. cerebral teratoma. Um, but I think, yeah, with the overseas work, what it did teach me, well, I feel with my personal um, spiritual views, it's like it still wasn't personal. It really felt personal. 
but it's but you know I'd seen so many other women suffer in childbirth when they didn't have access to a midwife what I took from it was there are six ways that the NHS saved my life with the birth of Fatima um lots of things including I had a retained placenta I went to emergency theater I had antibiotics IV all things that women didn't have access to you know there was one midwife in South Sudan when I was working there for the whole country you know mm. so many women wouldn't so as much as I suffer and I grieve and I grieve still you know I, I still recognize my huge privilege of I, I survived that pregnancy that pregnancy would have killed me if I hadn't have access to a midwife um it doesn't take away my grief and my loss but it, I definitely have a sense of perspective that one, I didn't feel it was personal, and two, I survived. And I went on to have, have my own child. Um, so yeah, definitely the, the work overseas informs my work here. I think it made me quite robust for the, for the um, COVID pandemic as well. I was used to working in different ways. I was used to having to change how I worked on a daily basis. And there was often a language barrier with, with women that I worked with overseas. It was the new air language in South Sudan, which was... Um, so I had to speak to, through translators. Um, but again, in the COVID pandemic, I was speaking to women through a visor and with, you know, a, if they had COVID with an FFP3 mask on. So again, it's, it's slightly different, but these are all barriers to how you connect with people because often you connect with facial expressions mm-hmm. and with smiles and with touch and with close proximity. And, you know, for a while we had all of that taken from us. So there are still ways you can connect with people but you just have to think outside the box and I guess my overseas work it 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 helps me in many ways be um, able to change how I worked and respond to the need and still try and obviously put the care of women in their the holistic care not just the practical medical care but you know their sensory care and their emotional care as as our priority Um, and it still you know it still does inform my work I probably wouldn't have been a midwife if it hadn't been for aid work and really understanding on the on the raw gritty front edge why midwives are so important um, and I, I hope I'll always be a midwife I mean I've been a nurse now for 20 years I hope, I hope I'll always work as both that would be my dream. One of the things I loved about your book is that your ability to find the hope and the optimism in even the hardest situations, like with your daughter, just feeling privileged. You said that you, that you had that care mm-hmm. as terrible as the outcome was. How, how have you been able to hold on to the hope even mm-hmm. in these really dark times? Gosh, well, we have to, isn't it? This is the thing. Um, let me tell you about Rashida. So she still inspires me. Rashida was a stateless, so she had no passport for any country. She'd been exiled from Myanmar, Burma, and was living in a refugee camp in Bangladesh, where I was overall responsible for 30,000 people's female and pregnancy health, which when I look back just seems unbelievable, but that was was the situation. And in this Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh, um, there was no longer a word for happiness because the people found they didn't need it. So the word itself had become extinct. Mm-hmm. Not with all Rohingya, this was specific to this camp. And I met Rashida at the start of her pregnancy and she'd already had 13 miscarriages. No pregnancy oh, had survived. Um, her husband Yusuf was missing. Um, he never did return. Um, 
often men would try and find illegal work to sustain them because they had to pay rent on these hovels that they had to live in in this refugee camp. When I met Rashida, she was kind and she was polite and she had she had no jewelry that she'd lost everything her all her 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 worldly belongings was a rolled up mat a knife for cooking and a and a cooking pot with a spoon but she had a nose piercing and in the nose piercing she kept this tiny little twig of wood just to keep the hole open and she'd explained to me that she had this she kept this twig there in the hope that one day she would have her gold back and she could have um, her nose piercing she could have jewelry again um, and I it, her pregnancy was almost like a vigil for me because it was so risky the camp was unbelievably difficult um, even after experiencing it for a year I still can't fully empathize with how difficult life is for you know stateless Rohingya refugees but at the end of it if she can find hope in this devastation she had hope and she had um her son was one of our first births. I created a whole birth unit from scratch. Her son was one of our first births and he survived. And if she can survive that and have hope, then who am I not to, right? Yeah. So she just, she still inspires me. I mean, I was probably somebody that came into her life and left again and her life was so difficult. I mean, she probably would never give me a second thought, which is absolutely appropriate and fine. But she continues to be somebody that even in the darkest times, there is more love than there is difficulty. I fully believe that. Even in, when people have suffered to such extremity, they can have hope, then absolutely I can. And it's the same with my, my experience of baby loss. I would never expect somebody else who's having a difficult time or has lost their child to have the same beliefs as me. Everybody's grief, everybody's loss, everybody's suffering. That is their journey to have. I don't, you know... I, this isn't like some like sanctimonious, like feel good, like meme that I could post on something. All I can say is what my experience is and what helps me. Um, and yeah, and it comes like having a truth in myself helps me like recognizing when I'm suffering and speaking out to say, do you know what? I'm really finding this difficult. Watching my breath and trying to take my adrenaline down and like a sense of mindfulness in, in what I do and how I speak and how I act with other people gratitude um really simple gratitude so I list when I'm having a really difficult time I list of the things I'm grateful for mm. that seems to help me to settle myself for what's ahead um yeah and just remembering to have fun and be silly and because mm. and you know have fun with my little one and not take life too seriously at the same time so yeah when I was writing my book I did try to balance there are really difficult episodes in it. There are, there is a lot of loss. There is a lot of graphic descriptions. Um, taboos kill women, so that's why I speak out about taboos from my own experience. Um, but I do also try to find the humour. You know, there's one point in, and my colleagues in Bangladesh are laughing over like a, a wooden penis that we're trying to do a <laughs> condom demonstration on. So there is some humour that you know it transcends religion life experience etc and you can find some fun um so yeah I, I, I'm not saying this to try and guide other people I can just say what helps me yeah and are you are you still writing I, I write every day if I if I can if I'm not too tired um I wrote a lot during covid again just on, on a testimonial side but also some crazy things like we were banned from wearing any PPE for a month when in the first lockdown, you know, the PP was locked away. It's not just our hospital, it was every hospital, mm. unless somebody was symptomatic of COVID. 
um, you know, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, was on the radio saying we have a lack of PPE. This was Easter 2020. We have a lack of PPE because nurses are using too much. You know, I still I still feel a lot of anger. I still feel a lot of I feel, you know, a lot of betrayal. There's also a lot of gaslighting because a lot of the politicians now are saying that wasn't how it was. And maybe the rules were too strict. And I'm sorry, but mm. I went every into work every day with fear that I could kill my child by working. I didn't want to not work because my community would die if I didn't go to work. Oh, and I'm angry. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm angry about this. Rightfully so. Anger is yeah. completely appropriate when we're put at risk. And they put my child at risk. And I'm not going to let that go too soon. So, yeah, there's a lot of writing that I've got. Um, I'm also working at the moment with a couple of friends on more of a humorous piece because there's some brilliant things that happen in midwifery, even in the staff room. But it's like that cutting edge, it's this appropriate humour, is it not? Like there's some wonderful things that happen um, that I don't think is fully represented. I think midwives are either like some crusading angel or like one born every minute or, you know, call the midwife. And none of them quite fully, or oh, this is going to hurt, let's not go on to that. Um, but they don't quite fully get the depth of humanity within midwifery I think that's still missing a little bit and how we are affected by the women that we have the honour to work with and any birthing person we have the honour to work with. Um, so yeah I think there's there's hopefully more to come and if my writing is just my way of processing the world and not going crazy then then it still it still has its important role. Well I would love to read your next book about um, <laughs> about your 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 next oh. chapters um again what what an achievement i would um recommend it to anyone oh thank you so much well thank you for your for your time and sharing these experiences and and yeah keep writing and um thank you for all your great work <laughs> thank you